0: Welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Condition Critical Edition. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm an editorial writer with the Journal, and I am here in the newsroom studio on the morning of Thursday, December 4th, with Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Good morning. City columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. And health reporter Keith Jorine. Hi, Sarah. We initially planned to call this episode Condition Critical because we knew Keith would be joining us today. On the show to talk about his investigation into the state of Alberta hospital infrastructure. It's an amazing series of stories that pulls back the curtains on the health of our healthcare system's bricks and mortar. But then the Progressive Conservatives introduced Bill 10 to force liberal MLA Lori Blakeman's bill supporting gay-straight alliances within the province's school systems off the table, which created a whole different kind of condition critical in the legislature. Uh, Laws seem to be writing on the fly, so we will absolutely be talking about that. But we want to start, however, with a series of stories on Alberta's hospitals. And I happen to know that this series was anything but on the fly. Keith, you've been working on Condition Critical for months. What got you started on this project?
1: I actually started thinking about these stories uh, well over a year ago, probably around the time that the Misericordia first hit the news here in Edmonton uh, with the major flood that they had there and some of the other uh, news stories about the failing infrastructure at that facility. And I started to realize that we have a lot of hospitals in this province, and a lot of them are of the same vintage of the Misericordia. So that got me wondering whether the infrastructure issues were a little more widespread around the province. So that was, it was just basic curiosity was part of it. But then on a personal level, um, last year I spent some time in hospital with my grandmother, not for myself, for her, Uh, and that hospital was the Foothills Hospital down in Calgary which coincidentally was the place I was born 40 years ago and just walking around there um, as great the care that my grandmother was getting and as amazing as some of the facilities at the Foothills are the main treatment center there really looked not all that different from the time I was born it was like walking back into the 1970s and so on a personal level, I wanted to know for the people that I care about what our hospital system is going to be going forward. If we really have all these infrastructure issues, what's the government's plan to deal with this?
0: Okay, so you ended up studying 97 active treatment hospitals, and, and maybe you can explain what those are, uh, in this province for your series. So what did you find out? Were they were they much different from the foothills?
1: Not really. I mean, what I found out was we have a lot of hospitals a lot of them are old a lot of them are starting to fall apart and showing some serious signs of breakdown Uh, and then just investigating that I started to wonder what is the government's plan how does the government rate or decide which hospitals have priority for funding and that led me to their their rating system and we found out that they are in some ways manipulating the rating system that it's it's got all kinds of problems and perhaps some of those manipulations are political in nature.
0: That overview is good. I think it's the specifics though that have really uh, grabbed me in some of your stories. And and Graham and Paula, you guys could chime in about what's you know maybe what struck you about his series.
2: The ants came marching one by <laughs> one. Hurrah! <laughs> oh, hurrah! <laughs> what what are, you, what are you referring to? The ants in the sundry hospital. Ant colonies are in the roof, in the walls. Blue
1: Yes, in the East Wing of the the Sundry Hospital, that was that was one of the little details in the reports that I looked out.
0: Okay, so I mean, what has stu- what has stuck out for you about about some of the specific things that you found about the condition of the hospitals? I'll start with that.
1: Um, I would say it was worse than I thought. Um, that the facilities have been very well built over the years, but not very well maintained. Um, the government has, I think, collectively over a, a large number of years, not invested enough in maintenance and we're now paying the price for that and they've got a big problem on their hands and how they decide going forward which facilities get replaced which ones might have to be closed which ones get renovations they don't seem to have a good system for doing that either certainly not a very public system and to me right now it looks as though the decisions they're making seem to be favoring pc writings over those that have voted for an opposition party
0: right and you you came to that conclusion through some analysis and looking at the data graham what kind of traction has this has keith series been getting in the legislature has it been getting any attention oh, absolutely
3: Yeah, a lot of questions and question period about this and referencing back to the newspaper the edmonton journal um so it's great um that the problem, of course, on one hand, you've got uh, Minister of Health, um, Mandel, Stephen Mandel, sort of saying, well, you can't rely on newspapers, when in fact they've done a really good job of digging into it.
2: Well, it, it based entirely <coughs> on their own documents, right? right? I mean, he didn't make this up. It's their records. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: And, and also we've got, in the, um, it's nice to see in the House, um, the Minister of Infrastructure, Manmeet Bullar, do a 180. He said, from now on, uh, we will release more information online about the rating system." And this is a system that's very secretive. You know, you've got, the government will hire consultants to go in there and rate the hospitals, but then they won't actually um, maybe follow that actual recommendation. They'll do their own recommendations, their own rating sort of secretly behind closed doors. So Bullar is based on what uh, Keith is on, on Earth has actually agreed then to start putting more information on the rating system online.
0: Right, about how they make, ar- if changes <coughs> seem arbitrary, why they're making those arbitrary changes? Is that basically why?
1: In theory, that's what he said. Yeah, we'll have to see exactly what they put online. But yes, that seems to be the idea.
0: Okay, I mean, how do we get to a situation in this province where we spend millions, probably billions of dollars on building health uh, health infrastructure, and then don't take care of it? It just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. How, how do we get here? Well, you know,
2: it's, you have to go all the way back to the days of Ernest Manning. I mean, many, many of our hospitals were it's built really, far would, back. That's really far Far back, were built when the Social Credit Party was in power, and they were built um, during the times that Ernest Manning and uh, Harry Strom were premiers. Uh, Peter Lawheed did another big burst of hospital building in the mid in mid-1970s and mid 1970s and into the early 80s. So we have a lot of infrastructure that was built at a time when Alberta was really booming, and at a time when even the most conservative governments believed in public infrastructure problem was we came into the Klein years, and there was this huge, huge push to eliminate the debt to reduce government spending. And I think it's a twofold thing. On the one hand, um, there was a lot of pressure to reduce spending. And on the other hand, there's always political pressure to spend in ways that are splashy. Uh, politicians would much rather open a new hospital or a new hospital wing than, to, you know, than th- there's not much glory in installing a new HVAC system or, <laughs> or, or replacing linoleum. I mean, no one invites you for a baseboard ribbon cutting. So at the same time, <laughs> they
3: you They know, should.
2: We were still we were still investing in some infrastructure, but it tended to be new infrastructure mm. and not in basic maintenance. And it's a funny thing. In a province that prides itself on being conservative in a small C sense in government, we haven't conserved the legacy that Manning and Lougheed left here. So some of these buildings, you know, as Keith said, he was born at the Foothills 40 years ago. I was born at the Royal Alex when it was brand new 50 years ago some of this infrastructure would have aged out anyway, and we would be looking at how to replace buildings that are 50 and 60 years old that were built during the height of the baby boom. That would always have been necessary. But the need has been accelerated and exacerbated by chronic deferred maintenance. And, you know, i I sang my little ant song. But that's just one example. I mean, Keith's series details the possibility of lead and radiation poisoning at a hospital in Lloydminster. It details mold, you know, toxic mold and and, and pipes bursting. And, you know, and, and one hospital that was built in 1911 and is still operational. And then finally, we get to the whole issue of rural hospitals. We built a lot of rural hospitals sometimes for political reasons, um, sometimes because those communities were larger. Now rural populations are shrinking and aging, and it's a very difficult political question. Nobody wants to be the politician who comes into small-town Alberta and says, we're closing your hospital, we're turning it into a long-term care center and a clinic because you don't need an active treatment hospital in a town with 6,000 people. Very few politicians of any party want to bell that cat.
0: I found there to be a lot of similarities. I'm much more familiar with schools in Alberta because I was the education reporter for a while. I found a lot of similarities in your series to what was going on with schools for a while because you report how uh, hospitals, AHS has had a priority list for several years and then the government wouldn't necessarily follow that priority list. And we saw the same thing for a long time with schools. School boards would outline their list of capital projects and then the government would kind of randomly pick from them and not always from the top of that priority list. Why do you think that this has been going on? Why has the government been ignoring AHS's recommendations? The very people who run the healthcare system, they've been not picking their top capital priorities. You, in your story today, you point out Wainwright, right? Or not Wainwright? Yes, Wainwright.
1: Yep. Yeah, Wainwright is uh, one of the examples that's been on the AHS list several times in the last uh, several years and have, has not whatever reason been selected for funding and has watched other communities that are not on AHS's list get their hospital or get their project and so yeah it's bred a lot of frustration because we don't have a standardized system we don't have the government relying on objective data or listening to the people who run the healthcare system and their priorities becoming their priorities Uh, and so you do start to wonder what is the criteria? What is what happens in those back rooms at Treasury Board and at Cabinet that makes them decide this hospital is more important than that hospital? And likewise, we, we, we saw
3: this though a few years ago with uh, Stephen Duckett, the former head of Alberta Health Services, of course, who the, the Cookie Monster is being called right because he <laughs> was fired after eating cookies refusing to answer questions from the media. But he spoke about um, I, this. Is actually, he actually he was forced out. He retired, but he was forced out. Got a severance payment a lot of money, but he came back and was speaking to the University of Alberta, and he was talking about Alberta's health system and the political interference. He called it the uh, Noah's Ark syndrome, that whatever you give to Edmonton health-wise, you must give to Calgary and vice versa. And he said it was really difficult for him to try and do things efficiently when the politics kept interfering mm-hmm. with the actual delivery of health care, whether it was building a hospital or anything else.
0: But why do you think the, like schools have been getting tons of attention in the last few years, like we finally woke up to the fact that Alberta was didn't have enough schools, and that the schools that we did have were starting to really fall apart. And, and that really captured the public's imagination, and the government has embarked on this massive project to, to build schools and renovate old ones. Why hasn't that really happened with healthcare? Well, it's interesting, because I think a lot of the debate around healthcare has been
2: about access rather than about the bricks and mortar. But I also think it's because we got distracted with shiny things. The Royal Alexandra Hospital is a really good example of all of Edmonton's hospitals. The main core building of the Alex is probably in the worst shape. I I know this because I read Keith's story. But I wouldn't have known it because when you look at the Alex from the outside, it looks fine. They've built all of these new facilities that are adjuncts to the main hospital building. So you look at the lowest hole pavilion for women's health, which is where I was at the Alex most recently for an appointment, and everything is new and beautiful and shiny. And so you think, well, well, the hospital must be in great shape. But it's the center core building where people are getting, you know, the, the bread and butter treatment that has really run down. It's the same, you know, you look at the Edmonton Clinic, you look at the Mazenkowski Heart Institute, everything looks beautiful. It's the stuff you don't see, um, you know, the, the pipes and the wiring and the, the the heat exchange.
1: The roof and the boilers, yes. Yeah,
2: you know, mm-hmm. and, and those, are, those are hidden from view. And I think the other thing is that The bulk of these hospitals are in rural communities. Um, I've never been to Bassano. I've never been to... um,
1: Castor. I've never
2: been to Castor, where they have the hospital built in 1911. So I I think also, you know, the Calgary Herald and the Edmonton Journal mostly cover Edmonton and Calgary. And we don't always cover what's going on in far-flung rural locations. And now we have a serious, serious problem because we've got all kinds of hospitals, we cannot realistically bring them all back up to fighting speed. And we are going to have to triage them. We are going to have to say, look, we need to consolidate some of these rural hospitals. People will get better health care if there's one regional hospital that has a bunch of doctors and a bunch of operating rooms than a whole bunch of tiny little hospitals that don't have enough staff and enough facilities. That is a very, very very hard political argument to make and it's next to impossible to imagine this government wanting to make it at a time when they're still fighting with the wild rose for support in those very
0: rural ridings Mm. so keith you have a final day of your series coming tells me in here in our box that it is going to be about what needs to be done to fix the system right can you can you give us a sneak peek (laughs) of what some of your findings are about what we could be doing to fix these problems
1: yeah I, i mean paula touched on on one of the big ones right now which is the rural hospital situation and it's not the silver bullet that's going to save everything but it is an important one it's probably the most controversial one that we probably do need to close some rural hospitals in this province uh even though politically jim Prentice has said he's not going there yeah my Uh, (laughs) jaw my jaw
0: is dropping right now as you say it really yeah
1: yeah but somebody needs to make the argument And, and paul outlined it very well there that creating uh, closing small low volume hospitals will help create bigger regional higher volume hospitals that should actually lead to better health care we are we're not actually going to save a lot of money when we did the analysis of this we're not going to save a lot of money closing rural hospitals but it should actually benefit the system overall so that that's a big one but in terms of the how the government manages this they need to get a lot more transparent with h- their rating system with how they make funding decisions. Um, we need to invest more in maintenance. We need to produce a maintenance plan and actually publish it for the public so that we show not exa- not only what we plan to fund but what we actually do fund and how much it costs and So those are some of the recommendations that we 'll be looking at.
0: Oh, well those sound like very common sense ideas, Keith. I look forward to <laughs> to reading those. <laughs> I also want to just give a plug to your database that you built for this series because right. anyone who is interested in the information about, you know, their local hospital or maybe the hospital that their family uses in another community, Keith has compiled all the information from these government reports in one place in a database. So I found that really interesting. I was searching, looking at the Northern Lights Hospital up in Fort McMurray right. to see what kind of state that is in. and also not great. Else, <laughs> no, not great at all. And also not the ones, but not as bad as others. So right. that was surprising to me. So as I've been reading every Word of Keith's series, I've also been equally absorbed this week in a series of debates in the Alberta legislature about two bills. One of them was Laurie Blakeman's private members bill. The other was called Bill 202. It had a longer title, but uh, the other was a PC sponsored replacement bill. A bill 10, which has a title about uh, ensuring the rights of children in our no, Bill of no, Rights. No, 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 no.
2: An act to change the Bill of Rights to protect Alberta's children. Something re- like that. Yes,
0: so I meant but to... We, re- must, we must protect the children. Will no one think <laughs> of the children? Yeah. Okay, so I, I have to ask this, Graham, like how did a private member's bill that was supposed to support an extracurricular school club manage to reignite a Lake of Fire-esque debate in the Alberta legislature? Give me a rundown of this chain of events because I am, I was gobsmacked on Wednesday night, and I am still shaking my head about what's been going on.
3: So this is Bill 202 from Laurie Blakeman. It was a, a bill. It's, Genesis is back in the spring when the um, the liberals had a motion about protecting, uh, enforcing gay straight alliances in schools, and that was defeated by uh, the PC, some PCs and some Wild Rose. So the liberals this fall brought it back under an actual bill this time, private members, Bill 202, and that would... Um, say that when students want a gay straight alliance in school you know an anti-bullying gay straight alliance in school that the schools would have to say yes we will actually have that club we will support
0: this club like any other school club right because
3: yeah so this wasn't an option uh, If students want it they get it that was the bill but then the government realized that if this was a free vote in the House, and it would be a free vote on this private member's bill, that a lot of the members in the government side would likely vote against it. And it would look like that they are a bunch of homophobic bigots, potentially. So so um, Prentice realized this is going to be a problem, so they thought, well, how do we avoid a discussion or a vote on Bill 202 that They'll be potentially very divisive for their own government caucus? And that is, hey, we'll bring in our own bill, and then we'll, in a sense, uh, use our own... Um, Majority to force through our bill over the Liberals. And so they began last week at an emergency meeting on Thursday morning to discuss how do we respond to the Liberals. Let's get our own bill. And then that day they announced there'd be another bill coming forward, Bill 10, their own bill on gay-straight alliances and issues like that, human rights on gay issues. But they have forced it through. They were writing it last week, and when Prentice actually announced the bill would be coming in this week, he couldn't explain it. Well, first of all, he shouldn't be explaining it in great detail because that, that's a purview of the legislature. But also, he hasn't seen the bill at that point because they haven't written the bill. So it's written in a matter of hours, it seems, or days. And on Monday, they bring it into the House. And there's this bill that says, basically, if students want a great straight alliance, they can get it. But if the school board's say no, you don't get it, then you've got to go to court and actually go through a Court of Queen's bench and, ent- and spend potentially years and a lot of money in court. So I imagine students doing that. So then the government realized, oh, this is not working out very well. So that was on Monday and Wednesday, yesterday, they brought an amendment to that to right. bill saying basically school boards, um, if they do say no, the Minister of Education will make sure there's actually a gay straight alliance, but it might not be on school property. Right. And so then you get the issue from the opposition saying this is segregation of gay students from the main the main body of students. So
0: in some ways, should the progressive conservatives not be acknowledged that, you know, they heard the criticism I think that in, in our editorial we pointed out that it was a fatal flaw in the bill that it would force students to go to the courts, for all, of, for God's sakes, if they were denied the ability to form a gay-straight alliance in their school. So they heard that, they acknowledged that, and they have tried, theoretically, to make the bill better. Yes, and, and like everything else they've done on this
2: legislation, as Graham has so eloquently pointed out, they've made it worse. I mean, it is... You know, we've been giving Prentice all this credit the last few weeks for all his great political strategy and his political smarts. I don't understand. I mean, all he had to do in this case was let Laurie Blakeman's bill come to the floor. It would probably not pass. And then it's history. Or you pass it and then you don't bother to proclaim it. You keep it tied up in regulations. And instead, they... First of all, they wrote this bill that made them look far more homophobic than anything that voting on Lori's bill would have done. And last week we talked
0: about how the Wild Rose were the ones who had been tying themselves up in mm -hmm. knots over this issue. And then it's the conservatives who, you know, I mean, I I would like to give Lori
2: Blakeman all the political, you know, strategic credit for setting this (laughs) trap into which they fell. But I think she was as gobsmacked as everybody else at, at, at their reaction. And the amendment that they brought forward is so ludicrous, which they passed last night. Um, not only does it take out the language that affords kids the right to appeal to judicial review, so that language is gone now. So you know the, the school board's decision is final, and there's no language in there at all about a, a, a leave to appeal to the courts. Although I think technically any law can be appealed to right. the courts. Yeah, technically. Yes. But, but, they, but they've taken out the language that afforded them you know the obvious response. And then they've said, if you want a Gay-Straight Alliance and your school board doesn't let you, um, we'll set one up for you at some other location. Well, for a rural student, where is that going to be? If, if you go to a school in Bassano or Castor, uh, where are you going to go for your Gay-Straight Alliance uh, to the local coffee shop? I don't think that's going to work very well. The whole point of this was to provide a safe place in schools for kids who can't come out anywhere else in the community, including in their own homes.
0: Yeah, Uh, so one thing I've been really struck by is suddenly school board autonomy is a thing in Alberta.
1: (laughs) I I know. I
0: (laughs) had no idea that school boards who can't pick their own schools, who can't raise their own taxes, who can't do all kinds of things, suddenly we're gonna allow them to say yes or no to like a student, whether a student club can exist or not. And I guess to clearly put all our cards on the table, Whether we're Catholic or not among here, I don't think there's any single one of us that doesn't think that students should be allowed to form gay-straight alliances in a school if they want, right? We all agree on that, so that's a bias that we all have. Well, you know, I have to say, there is an argument to be made,
2: which the government has utterly failed to articulate, that in a province where Catholic school rights are entrenched in in Alberta's foundational legislation, that Catholic schools do have a special status. There's an argument you could make that, uh, that charter rights to religious freedom say, for example, at a Hutterite colony school, uh, have to be balanced against the rights of gay students. But the government didn't make any of those arguments. And in fact, Bill 10 is such an odious bill that it gives any school board, including public boards with no religious affiliation, the right to ban gay-straight alliances outright. Uh, So... Is there an intellectual debate to be had about how we strike a balance between protecting religious freedom and freedom of conscience and protecting the civil rights of uh, gay and lesbian and trans students? Absolutely. But Jim Prentice's Bill 10 never gave an opportunity for that debate and never allowed anybody to articulate
0: it in anything like a humane and thoughtful way. Can, can they still pause this, Graham? Like, can they still put the pause button on yeah, this? Yeah, of and, course. Okay.
3: If they can do what they want. Majority government right. can do what it wants. They could, could scrap it and start over again. Um, so as
0: of Thursday, there's hope that they could pause it mm. and try well, and get it right. No, I,
3: I don't know. I think that they're hoping just to push this through and then p- hope people will forget about it.
0: And what will be the consequences for the progressive conservatives? There have been f- three of them, four of them, who have spoken out against it, whether they've actually voted that way or not. Um, there were some abstentions. We know Thomas mm-hmm. Okazic has voted against the government on this bill. Doug Griffiths did yesterday as well.
3: Ian Donovan. A- Ian
0: Donovan and Jason Lawn gave an eloquent speech against the bill but did not actually vote last and night And then on disappeared it. during the vote and came mm-hmm. back. Yeah. Uh, are there going to be any consequences or no, is this no, really I mean, a free no. vote? It's, it's
3: a free vote. They're yeah. not going to come down on, on them. But I think that um, it does sh- I think Paul is right that we were thinking, you know Prentice is this really shrewd political um, uh, puppet master. And this is one, of course, he's out of the province this week. Uh, people are thinking he did it on purpose. No, they wrote <laughs> this law last weekend. They didn't know how badly it would be received. It, it, they were rushing this thing through. So Prentice being away this because of mere coincidence, but he has to come back and, and wear this. And it's going to be a problem for him because th- this does, I think, play to the NDP and liberals who are saying this government's moving to the right. I don't know if it really is, but on this issue, it certainly seems to be.
2: It also looks really, really stupid. Whether, whether we're right or left, this government now looks like it's
0: lost its way. Hi, Press Gallery listeners. This is Sarah, breaking into the recording session late Thursday afternoon. I thought we needed to interrupt the smooth flow of the podcast because suddenly, this afternoon, Thursday, the government adjourned the legislature for the week without holding a third reading on Bill 10 after all. At about 4 p.m., Premier Jim Prentice held a news conference with MLA Sandra Jansen beside him and announced that the government will hit the pause button on the bill and talk to Albertans about it before it goes further. He said the bill has not been helpful to a difficult debate and took personal responsibility for the controversy. He offered no specifics, though, on what process the government will use to consult with Albertans on the bill, but you better believe that we will keep watching. Now let's get back to the podcast. I think Keith? is about to say something witty.
1: I I I, noticed that uh, Prentice is meeting uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie today, and (laughs) he knows something about getting out of sticky situations. (laughs) (laughs) And bridge building. He knows all about (laughs) real Close that bridge into that town where there was uh, a politician that he didn't agree with. That's a whole topic
0: for another day. (laughs) Why is he meeting with the New Jersey Governor? Are they going to give us a pipeline? Anyways, (laughs) anyways, we can can go. Graham, I don't want us to get off track when it comes to time. We need to move to good stuff from the gallery. Start us off, please. I was
3: actually going to Uh, I was reading a really interesting article in New Yorker about Angela Merkel the German Chancellor but I thought well hold on the thing that's really interesting this week is Keith's features on yes. condition critical. And I thought, whoa, that is you gotta read it. Like seriously. Um I knew there was political interference, I knew there was problems in the healthcare system, but Keith has done a really magnificent job of giving us actual details and examples of just what's actually going on out there. Not only the physical problems with the hospitals, the infrastructure, the maintenance, but also the political the perceived political interference. On what's actually going on, and the government right now doesn't seem to know really know how to answer the questions that are being raised. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's it. Good stuff. Over. We all agree. Keith's series is the <laughs> must-read of the week. <laughs> I've been taking it home and handing it to my husband every day and saying, "You must read this." Thanks, Graham, for that suggestion. Absolutely endorsed. Keith. You probably ought to recommend your own series, but you probably are too <laughs> modest to do so. So that, that's do you a have, little, something, yeah, a do little you have something else you'd like to suggest for mm. your good stuff?
1: Yeah, it's a uh, a book by a guy named Matt Bai, who's the uh, political uh, writer for Yahoo News, actually. It used to be at the New York Times. And he wrote a book called All the Truth is Out, The Weak Politics Went Tabloid. And it's uh, an examination of in his view, the moment that American political coverage turned from coverage of issues to politicians' personal lives. And he sees that as in 1987, the presidential campaign of Gary Hart, who was uh, caught in a sticky situation with a woman. And in that moment, Matt Bai says that was when we see everything that came forward um, since that time with coverage of politicians' personal lives sometimes trumping what's actually going on in the white house or congress and so on
0: so when did political coverage jump the shark when basically it, when
1: it turned celebrity yeah
0: ah okay and uh, that sounds like a, i haven't read that one yeah it's should i put it on my, cr- my christmas list
1: i i quite enjoy it anyone who enjoys political coverage and coverage of uh how the media works in the united states and to some extent in canada as well um it's a good one
0: okay fantastic thanks keith i'll go next I also have something from the U.S. It's from the New York Times, and because I write editorials, and I feel like I'm always trying to get better at writing editorials, I do read a lot of editorials from other newspapers. So I'm going to recommend something from the New York Times this week, from December 3rd, called "A Search for Justice in the Eric Garner Case." It's their editorial uh, on the results of a Staten Island grand jury on that declined to lay charges against a New York City police officer who put a man by the name of Eric Garner in a chokehold. And he died in police custody. This has prompted all kinds of protests in New York City in the last couple of days. Mr. Garner was on the street selling loose cigarettes, and uh, for him to end up dead for that infraction is just absolutely appalling. And the reason I'm recommending this editorial is because it is very strongly worded, and I'm I'm and very clear and very persuasive, and I recommend I recommend it as a how to write a good editorial piece, and I'm going to be taking notes on this myself. Although, I hope we don't ever have that kind of situation to write about here. Paula, good stuff? Yes, I'm going to recommend
2: something a little bit different. Um, uh, It's a novel called Radiance of Tomorrow by a writer from Sierra Leone named Ishmael Bey. Some people may remember that he wrote a very best-selling and controversial, uh, provocative memoir about his time as a child soldier in Sierra Leone called A Long Way Gone. This is his first novel, and... It's a remarkable piece about a community in Sierra Leone attempting to rebuild their village after almost everyone in the town was uh, was murdered. And, uh, and then they have to face off against uh, resource companies that are coming in to open up mines in the area. And so it's a beautiful piece of subtle and evocative writing, uh, which tells you a lot about the politics of Sierra Leone. But I think for people in Alberta, it's also a story about a community that has to choose between jobs and resource exploitation. And there are a lot of parallels that I found quite eerie. And uh, so it's it's a, a beautiful book. Again, it's called Radiance of Tomorrow by Ishmael
0: Bay. Fantastic. Thanks for that recommendation. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Graham, Paula, and Keith for talking hospital infrastructure, politics, and Bill 10 and Bill 202 with me. And thanks to journal videographer Ryan Jackson for this week's video production. You'll find a video clip from this week's discussion at edmontonjournal.com and previous audio episodes of the Press Gallery are archived on our website, edmontonjournal.com slash opinion. Or if you prefer, you can download the free podcast from iTunes or listen via our Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. You can also like us on Facebook. Well, right now, now, things are changing. You can like the Edmonton Journal site on Facebook. Our individual Press Gallery site is going to merge into the larger Edmonton Journal Facebook page. So join us there and uh, let us know what you think about this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week in the Press Gallery.